Hello, and we're back for another episode of the Pink Mike Podcast. It's Dr. Penny Smith, and I'm here today to talk about a t- a probably what most would say is, is a pretty controversial topic, but it needs to be discussed. Today, we're going to talk about pornography and specifically viewing pornography. The title of today's episode is What's Wrong With This Picture? The Impact of Viewing Pornography. Also, we're going to touch on and explore in this episode the topic of racism in pornography. I have with me today a very special guest. His name is Russ Funk, and his primary focus areas include promoting healthy masculinities, preventing violence, promoting equity, diversity, and justice. Russ is a longtime activist and community organizer focusing on anti-racism and gender justice. He has more than 30 years of experience in mobilizing men to help end violence against women and working with communities, campuses, and organizations. Russ is also the co-founder of the North American Men Engage Network and currently serves as secretary of the board for the National Center on Sexual and Domestic Violence. Welcome, Russ. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to to be on your podcast and to to having this conversation. Excellent. Well, I want you to just start us off and and tell us a little bit more detail about your research, your training and the work that you've been doing for the past 30 years. Well, sure. I think that provides a good context to locate uh, the the pornography work that I've that I'm I've been doing. Um, yeah, as you indicated, I've been working um, pretty much as a grassroots organizer uh, in various parts around the country, specifically on mobilizing and engaging men and boys to prevent gender based violence, and similarly uh, working with white folks on our work to combat racism. In addition to the work that the history that you uh, acknowledged, I'm also active with our local, I'm based in Louisville, with the local surge chapter showing up for racial justice and, and reaching out to white folks around our the leadership that that is on us to counter and combat racism. And, and in particular, we're doing some work here locally on intersecting the work specifically with white men on doing the work both for racial and gender justice in an integrated way. Um, my the focus of my writing has been primarily in terms of the issues of gender-based violence. Um, I've written, I guess, four books now, a couple of manuals, um, and and really the focus is um, that that gender-based violence happens because men perpetrate it, and the good men who don't perpetrate it tend to stand by on the by side on the sidelines, um, not being terribly active, and so. My focus has been on how do we get those men who are already supportive of the idea of gender equality and gender justice, how do we move most effectively move them from, from the sidelines into the game? Because that's how this is going to end when, when men are as committed and as inter- integrally involved as women are in, in stopping the violence. Excellent, excellent. And and tell 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 me a little bit more about you mentioned Surge in Louisville. T- tell me a little bit more about that that organization and that initiative. So Surge is actually a national movement that was started about ten years ago. Um, Surge stands for again showing up for racial justice. Um, we're kind of positioning ourselves as parallel to the Black Lives Matter movement, and uh, really focusing on. Um, 
the, 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 the basic premise that it is not the job of black folks or brown folks to save their own lives from, from white violence. Um, it's our job as white people to stop perpetrating violence, whether that's the microaggressions that are a daily occurrence. I shouldn't say occurrence that they're daily perpetrated or the macroaggressions that such as the, the police shootings. Um, and so surge both nationally and, and here locally surge focuses on empowering white folks and providing the skills and resources of white folks of how we can connect with other white folks around our work in a way that is very strategically and very transparently accountable to the Black Lives Matter movement and the Black Black Lives Matter leaders. Excellent, excellent. Well, I, I just want to say, I want to pause quickly here and say that I, I appreciate um, how, not just being involved, but also the acknowledgement, because I think a lot of times when you, um, you've probably had your fair share of, of, of watching um, some of the Facebook debates or some of the other social media debates about uh, Black Lives Matter and should that even be a moniker and, and the, just the importance of that and just how, um, some, I, I'm going to say kudos to you and I salute you because um, it is a brave position um, for a white man to, to take, to stand up and be able to say, no, we have to be a part of this movement as well. We have to be a part of the solution in this type of movement. So I want to, first of all, just acknowledge your bravery uh, for that. So thank you for that. Um, thank you. That's now, generous of you. Yes, yes. Now, at, as so that's going to segue us into... Um, a topic that I don't really hear talked about very much, and that is the intersectionality between pornography and racism. Um, I want you to, if you could share with us uh, a little bit more about your work, um, whether it's the research or just some of the work that you're doing in your uh, advocacy and activism um, about the intersectionality of racism and pornography. Absolutely. So the, the title of your podcast is actually the title of the project that we, we, we run here, which is called What's Wrong With This Picture? The Impact of Viewing Pornography. The center stone of that project is an eight-week program uh, curriculum that we provide to men in the community. Um, last, last fall, I published a, pub, actually published a curriculum so that that resource is available for other communities to, to bring. Um, and the, the overall curriculum invites men to just using kind of a media literacy lens, um, just explore what is the impact of viewing pornography. Um, the, one of the premises of the program as a whole is that like any, any kind of media, um, media is not only transmitting entertainment, it's also training um, transmitting values and social norms. And if we're not paying attention, again, the media literacy lens, if I'm not paying attention to a TV show that I'm watching or a song that I'm listening to, then I am internalizing the values and the social norms that are part of that, that entertainment without necessarily paying attention. As an example, I'm sure I'm not the only person who, who's listening right now um, who finds myself singing along to a song that I really like and hearing the, and then paying attention and listening to the words that are coming out of my mouth and feeling like, Oh, wait, wait, I don't believe that. How did that happen? I'm saying stuff that I, that I viscerally dis disagree with, but you know, the beat is good and the tune is good and I've been paying it and I'm just kind of rocking to the song and all of a sudden saying stuff that it ain't true to me. Um, mm -hmm. Well, 
if that's true with listening to a song, then that's also true with, with men's experience of pornography, that there are values embedded in pornography that wow. when we're viewing pornography, we're internalizing without paying attention. Now, the other dynamic in viewing pornography is that men aren't just viewing pornography. They're also masturbating to, to, to pornography, which means that not only are the lessons being learned at a cognitive level, but they're being learned at a deeply emotional level because masturbating to masturbation is is leading those lessons to go directly to the pleasure the pleasure points of the brain, which means the the learning is much more profound and much more deep much more deep than a TV show that I'm watching or a song that I'm listening to. Even if I'm moving and dancing to the song, and there's some pleasure to it, it's a different kind of. What brain science tells us is that it's a different kind of embeddedness of the values when, when, it, when we're touching those, those, those pleasure points of the brain. Now, all of this is happening for the most part when men view pornography. All of this is happening without their consciousness. So the point of the program is to raise to our consciousness that this is having an impact. There are values that you're viewing in pornography that you do not agree with. And... Let's let's create that cognitive dissonance and an opportunity for men to just notice that, oh, wait, that is true. I don't agree with that part of pornography that I'm watching. And then what does it mean that that this that this cognitive this that there's these values that I'm paying attention to and masturbating to that I don't agree with? The program unpacks a lot of that for men. Okay. Okay. Now the is the program deployed and implemented within is it campuses, colleges? Is it community-based organizations? What are the organizations that would, would are examples of ones that would actually implement this program? So by and large, yes, we've been, we've been, we've partnered with community-based organizations and campus organizations here in the Louisville area as we created the curriculum. Um, the biggest lesson that we've learned is that this, this curriculum works quite well with pre-existing groups of men it is a much harder process with men who don't know each other or to, to kind of invite men in a, in a general community call and say, hey, come, come talk about pornography. Um, so, okay. um, yes, our, the process that we've been using has been with, in partnership with community-based partners and campus-based partners. To date, it's been primarily with, almost exclusively with adult men. Um, I am working on an adolescent men version, um, but that's still in process. Okay. Now, since the curriculum has been available, I have heard of other communities that have adapted it already for the adolescents that they're working with. So apparently there's some value to, to the curriculum and the program as is to, um, to adopt to adolescents if, if folks might be interested in, in using it in that way. Okay. Excellent. Excellent. So this brings me to really uh, the, our, this is uh, the part of the, the segment of the episode where I uh, infuse a question of the week or a scenario of the week. And this comes from one of my speaking and training engagements um, from across the country. I don't divulge the institution, of course, or um, any of the, of the students that participated, but there was um, a university where I was invited to come in and provide the um, NCAA sexual assault awareness and prevention training component for that particular institution. It was a division one institution. And I was in a room full of about 300 athletes. Um, 
And I had one part of the training where I invited a former um, NFL linebacker, um, actually a, a Hall of Fame nominated linebacker. So the folks in the room, especially the football players, knew exactly who he was. And the whole purpose was for him to discuss an incident that involved confrontation with a female. And he was describing to them that he at this at this particular point in time, he was in the NFL and this particular female was one that he had um, ended a relationship with. And she came to his house and wouldn't leave. And he was just talking about how he, you know, um, even though there was a huge size, physical size differential, he was afraid because he thought that if she calls the police, something could happen um, to him. Um, And he was trying to ask her to leave um, his home. So this was um, basically a story where we had had one, one story where we showed where there was a male um, who was being abusive to a female. And then this was an actual story where this was a female who was um, crossing some boundaries uh, with a male. Always wanted to show both sides with the students. And so um, at the end of his story, um, the students had a question. So it was Q&A time. And the question was, what was the race of the female? And before we allowed him to answer, before I allowed him to answer, I said, okay, can you, can you tell me a little bit more about why you're asking this question just so we can make sure that we engage fully in this conversation? And so they admitted that there was a bet between uh, two groups of athletes and one group bet that the woman was black and the other group bet that the woman was white. So they were trying to figure out who was going to win the bet. Now, I have no idea what prize was involved in this type of bet. I didn't ask. Um, but he, he gave the response and he said that she was a black woman. And, you know, so they're kind of like having their moment where they're going back and forth. Told you, told you, told you. Um, And so I said, okay, let's unpack this because, you know, you had a bet about the race of a woman in a story. So let's unpack it. And so one of them was brave enough to stand up and say, well, so here's the deal. Um, You know, we thought that she was probably white. Because, you know, she it's no telling probably what she's already put up with and white girls don't call the cops. And then the other group said, no, it was a sister because, you know, sisters are bold and I can see a sister rolling up on his house like that and deciding she wasn't going to leave. And so we had to unpack that. And I and I, I wasn't um, in that moment thinking that I was going to have to unpack an issue of race with this story. Um, but yet I found myself in that situation having to do that. And at the end of the day, helping them to get to the conclusion and help them to understand that it's not about the race of this woman and that the fact that they had a bet is all embedded in some previous stereotypes. So it's the stereotype that the sisters are aggressive and they're not going to call the cops on a brother because they don't want to get the cops involved, but they will roll up on your on your crib unannounced and won't leave. And then the stereotype that well, white girls will put up with anything and she probably was just at the end of her rope and was trying to beg him back. Um, so all these these stereotypes and these stories were all embedded and, and packed underneath this question. And so I'd love to hear your feedback on um, how the intersectionality of racism and pornography could have contributed 
to this bet within this um, particular training with these students. So I'd love to hear your feedback and your response to that. And also, what would you have told them? Oh, goodness. Um, there's a lot there. So <laughs> let me I, let me back up a little bit yeah. and, and kind of uh, in terms of, of the racism and pornography, just I think it's really critical to, to own that, that pornography is one of the most virulently racist media outlets that we have, that if you remove the sexual uh, aspects component to pornography and just looked at, at, at pornography from a, a race equality lens, um, most of what is being published and promulgated in pornography would not be tolerated in mainstream media. It would not be accepted. Um, the, the way that both black and brown men and black and brown women are portrayed in pornography, the kind of racist terms that are used in embedded in pornography that is called eroticizing and sexualizing would absolutely not be tolerated, rightfully so. Now, I'm not saying that there are, that any other media outlets are necessarily racially just, <laughs> but in terms of right. <laughs> um, what's, what's happening within pornography, it is, it is extraordinarily problematic. And part of, the, part of what's problematic is how accepted it is because it's called pornography and not NBC News or an ABC sitcom. Um, in terms of how that might impact on this, um, the situation that you you faced, I, I think that it seems to me that it, it's part of a broader narrative around how white women, whiteness, and and uh, gender gets are intersectionalized. Um, and the, the stereotypes and the biases that are placed on people based on the intersection of their race and their gender. Um, and um, what that means about our assumptions of, of how women are going to react. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know if I answered your first question or kind of evaded it. So. <laughs> no, you did. You did. You answered it. Um, I'm just wondering. If this was if this is the training you were you were in and you heard this, what what would you have shared with those young men? Um, in addition, in addition well, to what, what I mentioned, in terms of the, the way that I presented, I, I am I'm really clear that my presentations and my work is around uh, engaging men as allies and, and um, exploring what's what's men's part of the solution. Um, and so kind of my initial pushback from that context, from that position is how does interrogating a woman's response or women's behavior and how race might impact her behavior? How does that help inform the kinds of activities that we as men take that are effective and allying to promote gender equality or gender respect? Um, I, I, I know that it's it's tempting to sidestep ourselves and, and spend a lot of time of wondering why she does that or why, why she does this or what's her motivation for doing this, that, or the other. But in terms of answering the question of how do we, how, do, what is our role as men in promoting gender equality and gender respect? I don't know that those conversations help. Um, I think in fact, they distract us. Mm, and um, so I tend to push back yeah. and, and just say, you just ask that question. Um, maybe not as judgmentally as I'm sounding right now, <laughs> but being really clear that, you know, there, there, and, 
maybe that's where you all want to go with the conversation. If I'm in front of this, you know, room, locker room full of athletes, maybe that's where you want to go with the conversation. But if you brought me here, then my understanding is that you brought me here because you're interested in your role as athletes in helping to end gender-based violence or promote gender equality on your campus. And if the goal of the conversation is your role as part of the solution and your, as, as your role as leaders on your campus, then again, how does talking about her help us clarify your role? Excellent. 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 I, 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 I love that angle um, uh, for sure. And, you know, unfortunately, in, in a lot of settings that I find myself uh, being brought in as an external trainer or speaker, it's yes. mandatory training. So it's not necessarily that these athletes and, and it's not an indictment against them at all, but it's just that they had to be there. And it was part of a compliance measure from the institution or the athletic department. Um, and so uh, I, I have I have learned to never be surprised by any of the topics. Um, and I actually want them to put these kinds of things. I would rather them have this conversation with a facil- a person who can facilitate the conversation in the room versus this is what they talk about in the locker room and there there's no one there to kind of guide where this conversation needs to go or the fact that hopefully they can learn that this is the type of conversation that shouldn't even be really on the table at all um so but I love your response I love that I love that and you're absolutely correct um, just in terms of how do we how do we even help them to navigate types of of questions or conversations that are relevant versus the ones that really are are loaded in stereotypes or in uh, ways of thinking to uh, to to pull men away from being a part of being um, a contributor to moving away from this kind of behavior. So um, I definitely appreciate um, your response for sure on this one. So that that's You're very welcome. helpful. Thank you. Um, um, let's talk about, um, but before we go ahead and summarize, do you have any other um, thoughts um, or points of um, points to contribute in terms of how uh, pornography impacts racist views of how women are expected to mm. behave in these relationships, right? Because that was that example um, was basically that there's an expectation of how women are expected to behave in relationships, and even based on whether you're white or black. Um, um, any other final I, thoughts? I, as have? a white person, I I, you know, I I focus, you know, my work on white people's white men's experience, and um, I think. From my experience in running the program, what's wrong with this picture? What one of the things that is um, really eye-opening, both in terms of for the white men, both in terms of when it's a predominantly white men audience or when it's a mixed race audience, is just how blatantly racist pornography is, and that opportunity to explore it in terms of how they, how black and brown women are portrayed in pornography, and what does it mean to us as white men, regardless of our values when we are masturbating to that imagery and to that, that narrative, um, that, that opportunity to open up that conversation has, it is, is, is seems to be pretty profound. Um, I don't have particular evaluative research to unpack that further, but, but just in terms of the experience that 
men tend to get white men in particular tend to get a lot out of that that particular conversation. Wow, thank you for bringing that to light too. Um, as we get to our final points, um, I definitely want to go back to making sure that we get all the information out there about your curriculum and kind of where you are with it. So, if you could um, please uh, wrap us up with information about how to contact you, information about your books, your curriculum, um, and any other closing remarks. Well, thank that you. you might uh, want to yes, offer us my website is R-U-S-F-U-N-K dot M-E. If you go there, then you can find access to the What's Wrong With This Picture program and a variety of materials and resources that I have available there. You can also kind of, if you are so inclined, take a look at, at the other resources and programming that I have available. And um, um, in terms of final thoughts, I well, I'm sorry, as another resource, I would encourage folks to consider checking out the North American Men Engage Network. Um, NAMIN is the the network of efforts and programs throughout the United States and Canada that are working to engage and mobilize men. You can check out NAMIN at uh, www, www, sorry, um, org, And uh, you can, it's easy to sign up. It's easy to join, become a member. And that connects you not only with other activists throughout the United States and Canada, but because NAMIN is a member of the Global Men Engaged Alliance, that would, that connects you with the movement worldwide. And um, there is some very exciting work that's being done throughout the United, throughout the globe, in terms of um, engaging and mobilizing men as as active uh, supporters of promoting gender equality and, and gender respect. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Russ, for joining us on the Pink Mike Podcast. Thank you again. And please reach out to Russ and take a look at his information. I think you will find it most helpful, especially if you are in the business of um, engaging students or men uh, in this topic. Thank you again, Russ. And see you all again next time on another episode of the Pink Mike Podcast. Coming soon, my violence reporting and mental health coping app will be available to the public in the Android and Apple stores for download. Stay tuned for the launch date. If you or someone you know needs support healing from intimate partner violence or post-abortion grief, you can find my book on Amazon, Dr. Penny Smith, The Second Woman Bible Study, Healing from Intimate Partner Violence and Post-Abortion Grief.